Welcome to Tanked Up, the podcast all about craft beer and video games. It's episode 327. I'm your host, Adil, and I'm once again joined by BitRock Gaming's Chad and Curtis McGinney. Hey, guys. Hey, I'm really happy to be back. Feels like it's been forever, <laughs> uh, but it feels like coming home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how have you been since we last spoke? Uh, I, it's been good, actually. I've been decompressing, you know, since the game came out. I, I've been uh, drinking a little. I've been pre-gaming, as we call it, in the States. Mm, yes. Um, I, yeah. I actually think Definitely all pre-gaming. three of us are a beer in before we even started recording. Amazing. That's true. I mean, I could have used with a little bit more time away from Curtis, but um, it's nice <laughs> to see him again. Yeah. <laughs> uh uh, well, let's start with Curtis this time. Do, what, what do you? What's your beer choice well, for this? I, I think we should start with Chad. Actually, I have to go grab. Uh, uh, I <laughs> neglected to bring. I'm I'm doing bad here. Oh, all right, no worries. Let me go get my beer. All right, <laughs> well, right <laughs> fair enough. Chad, you're back in the hot seat. What, what am got? I doing? Sorry. What beer are you drinking? Oh, I, I don't have a second beer actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I thought running straight through episode to episode recording was going to be smooth transitions, and then <laughs> I failed miserably. Should I should have done the heads up? Uh, <laughs> in which case, uh, while we're killing <clears throat> time, um, favorite beer you've had recently? Ooh, um, yeah, I would say probably the one that I've had recently that's been notable is the Black Hearted Ale. So I mentioned I got. This collection of uh, bells, kind of yeah. variations on the two-hearted ales, and one of them was the one I had just before, which is the light-hearted ale, which is the more kind of sessionable version. Uh, and then there was also included in that collection the black-hearted ale, which is their black IPA kind of take on it. And I mean, I wouldn't say it's my favorite black IPA. I, I think that probably goes to. Um, Ooh, I've had so many, but one of them that pops up in my head for sure is is Stone's Black IPA, which is phenomenal. Um, but it, it it was a great Black IPA, and it's uh, I would say cut this nice toasty roast uh, flavor that like you know you know kind of dark and intense, but balanced by the really strong um, resiny and piney hop uh, flavor, and a really good balanced mouthfeel. It's, it's not, not too sweet. sweet. It's it's a little bit, I would say, mid to dry, but uh, still like you know heavy malt flavor. Uh, yeah, I I love black IPAs. I, I wish more people would would make them. See, uh, I have, I love the concept, and I think I might. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna have to seek hit you up for suggestions and see if I can get them here because I haven't met very many black IPAs that like follow through on the promise of a black IPA uh, <laughs> often I feel like like for you saying like oh it's got the roasted maltiness and it's balanced off by like like a hoppy pininess sounds luxurious but I so often <laughs> do I does do I get like black IPAs that just don't do the IPA part or kind of just taste like IPAs that happen to be dark um and I so so like right like i love stouts i'm probably the resident like stout porter uh, of, of the tanked up crew and black ipas consistently or like it's very easy for a black ipa to be like 
Oh, but you could have just had one of these really roasted, nice, heartier, dark beers. Um, and it's not like I just want stouts. It's more of, like I said, I want to know, I want the balance. Like I, I, I just, I, what, what I don't need is more stouts to taste watery. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. And I think uh, it points to, I think, the, the difficulty in making that style. Uh, it's it's a balancing act, and you either get uh, a kind of muddled IPA, or rather, it's possible to either get a, a, a muddled IPA or a watered-down stout, right? Because there's lots of stouts that are hop-forward, that, that are, you know, big and robust, but balanced because of their aggressive hopping. Uh, I think the trick with a black IPA is to recognize um, the, the IPA framework that you're trying to capture, as well as, as the um, stout, and in, in what properties of both you're trying to retain. And to me, the, bla the best black IPAs are retaining uh, the, I would say, somewhat dryness of a, of a more like West Coast IPA, mm. uh, with, with it being very hot forward and bitter, but allowing the, the roastiness to come through from the stout, because... The nice, the nice thing, thing you, you know, know and you know, you know just, just to get into a little bit of the mechanics, mechanics of brewing or, or the art of brewing, really. Uh, you know, malt. Uh, there's a, there's a diversity of malts, and some malts, uh, I would say, have a stronger flavor to them than their contribution to the, the sugar content. And roasted malts are indeed that. Like the amount of, um, like a very dark roasted malt you have to add into the recipe to make it taste like stout is much smaller than the amount of base grain. Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about that is that you can actually capture a lot of that essence of a stout without overly contributing to the, the maltiness and the sweetness of the beer. So you can keep it still relatively dry while retaining those roasty flavors, um, but you don't want to go so dry that it just loses the mouthfeel and it, yeah. it, it just becomes this kind of like bone dry, like, <laughs> because the, I mean, the malts, the, the roasted malts are going to have a little bit of bitter, you know, notes to them already. Right. So it's, it's tricky to find that balance. And I think it's probably particular for recipe, for the gravity, if you're trying to get the hops that you're using, that you use. But one that, you know, I, I come back to often, that's a little bit easier to find. You know, I've had some one-offs right here and there. They're like, fantastic. But one that you might be able to find off the top of my head is, Stone sublimely self-righteous black idea. Yeah. I, I do think that's one that is a pretty good go-to that does strike this balance. Um, and that's just because I think Stone has such a long history of making IPAs now. They, they make so many IPAs, they really understand what makes an IPA tick. Right. And I think with this one, they, they've retained that while still trying to make that, um, the, the stouty, roasty part of it, like heat up shine. a uh, but not dominate. Awesome. I, I, now, I uh, the real tricky tab. one is finding a. Yeah, yeah you, you should. should. Uh, the, the real tricky one is finding a good black, black uh, barley wine. Which oh. Those are awesome. I have that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. I don't think I had a black barley wine. Oh, interesting. Oh. So Stone's in uh, SoCal? Yeah. yeah, they're in San Diego or outside San Diego. Ah, so this might be one of those things where I hit my brother-in-law and sister uh, who are in Berkeley. I think they actually opened up a brewery in the UK or they're in the process of it. Like One of the things about Stone is that they do not ship, uh, or rather, they 
their entire fleet is refrigerated. So their beer is refrigerated from bottling to point to yeah, point to point. Jeez. So the trucks, everything. So for that reason, they don't like, for example, ship overseas because they would have to refrigerate it overseas to meet their quality. Um, so for that reason, they wanted to to move more into the European market, and I. I read at one point that they were opening another brewery in the UK in order to, to just brew it over there and ship it completely. Oh, yeah, it looks... There's a Stone Brewing UK. Or is it UK? Okay. Uh, it looks like that's... I mean, I don't know, but they've got an Instagram and a Twitter, Stone Brewing UK. I will look further into it, but in the interest of staying on topic, <laughs> I will seamlessly segue to Curtis, who, who has been here the whole time, waiting patiently to tell us about his beer. Hey, you guys... I've been taking a long time. Oof. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say, uh, Black IPA, that energy maybe describes our game pretty well. <laughs> We're trying to do these two things at once. Uh, but I have something completely different. Uh, I have something, it's very traditional, but mm. I actually haven't had this before. So I've had Chimay blue and red. I've always avoided the Chimay white because I felt like, um, I don't know why. It just didn't seem to attract me. But I saw it today and I decided, you know what, maybe today is finally the chance where I can try it out and compare it to some other ones to see how I feel about it. I don't know. Have you guys had... I'm sure, I mean, it's pretty popular. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, a long time ago. I, I was going to say, I haven't had a Chimay in donkey's ears, um, which is how long it used to take for them to ship it around via donkey. Ears. Um... <laughs> That's a Trappist joke. Uh, <laughs> uh, while you pour that, I'm going to tell you about my beer, which is uh, Siren's um, Cacao and Hazelnut Broken Dream. It's a twisted breakfast stout. 5.8%. An indulgence of chocolate and specialty malts. Broken Dream is smooth, unctuous, and Moorish. It's brewed with milk sugar for balance and mouthfeel, along with carefully selected espresso. As a special one-off, we've taken it a step further, spinning the beer on cacao nuts and hazelnut for a delicious praline twist. Um, yeah, so Siren's a solid brewery here, um, here in the UK. And yeah, I, I, one thing I do like about Siren is, I mean, going back on our chat, is they know how to stout. Um, which for an all-rounder brewery, sometimes that's, especially given the tastes of the public. Like, being pale ale IPA focused, it's not uncommon to have all like breweries who do everything. Their stouts are just sort of all right. Uh, Siren's not that. Siren knows how to. They've their nitro stout that they came out with a few months back, although it's probably six. But you know, um, was was excellent. Um, I when they come out with a new stout, I'm always like, yes, this will be on my shopping list. Um, and so I'm really excited about them. The cacao and hazelnut spin on the um, broken dream. Yeah, yeah, that, that sounds, sounds really interesting. interesting. I, would I would be curious, curious to, to, to hear how it turns out. I feel like that is one of those things that is very ambitious. Like, like there's so many things going on there. there. Hazelnut can absolutely overpower it and ruin it. Yeah, And then having the milk sugar in there, you know, there's the danger that it's not just silky and a nice full mouthful, but rather sweet and kind of slick, right? So, so, you know, you know it, it sounds, sounds like one of those things that, like, if pulled off well, would be excellent, but it could be awful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Siren, definitely not a stranger to lactose in their stouts, but 
but you're right like the the hazelnut is i think the x factor that i i'm like oh i'm on the same page as you is like it could go either way because i know they can do lactose uh starts with lactose in them uh, i know they can do cacao i'm sure they could figure like it, it together but also just even just the number of extra ingredients to balance like even if you're good at all three doesn't mean you know how to do them all at once but uh before we find out whether it lives up to its hype um <laughs> tell us about that Charmaine. Okay, here we go oh it's got a lovely um reddish is that sort of ready orange i would say amber it might be on my computer yeah i was gonna say it's impossible like everything in my room looks like super yellow so everyone's like oh it's straw colored i'm like no, no, no it's just my yeah camera. i would say it's more amber mm, color. Okay. Uh, it's all very attractive it had a nice head uh but not over the top otherwise it would have spilled lacing yeah i, I would say that um I don't know why I avoided this beer for so long. It's obviously very good. <laughs> um, I mean, like a kind of, I don't recall exactly if people turn or consider this like a Belgian strong L versus like a Belgian golden L, uh, but it's in that kind of like zone of things. And um, I would say that this is like a kind of uh, archetypical, uh, like the uh, kind of epitome of that in a sense, just tasting it for the first time. I almost feel like I've, uh, all the other beers that I was tasting and that kind of genre we're kind of trying to hit this <laughs> oh wow so um what's the abv again it is uh eight percent okay yeah so but once again i think it's fuller some strangely I, I feel like it is fuller bodied than the rockford um definitely dry drier um and it's got that nice belgian yeasty flavors whoop sorry <laughs> uh, uh, also, um, definitely, um, lively, uh, but not over, not as quite as effervescent, um, uh, mm -hmm. definitely lemongrass, like lemongrass, uh, coming through loud and clear. And I like it a lot, you know, I like that flavor. And I guess what I like about this in a strange way is that it's not complicating it i feel like um especially these days we're in the almost decadent postmodern period of beers um, <laughs> and this is almost, it. yeah and this is like a very modernist like this is doing its thing very well like it's very clearly um figured out like they know what they're doing and they're mm -hmm. doing that exactly um so I mean, yeah it's great it's that is the benefit of belgian and trappist beers right it's just like not only are they not aspiring to be complicated, but also they've been doing it a long time, so they definitely are doing it well. Yeah, hey, I'll have to take. I'll have to dig dig around to find Chimay because I the thing is I don't know. This is a weird thing about um like not the big names in Trappist beers is like bottle shops will carry Rock Four, for example, um like like craft bottle shops, but you don't often get other because there's only so much trappist shelf space you know what i mean it's actually i don't remember last time i saw a chamay in my usual haunts but i'll have to i'll have to dig around because because you've reminded me they exist not in a bad way just like you know there's only so much beer you can you can see in the world and uh but i i've had them before and i've always been impressed and it's been a while so yeah chamay blue in particular was kind of my jam for mm. a while i really love that beer um but i have to say like i, I think this is very 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 good i mean mm. uh, yeah 
it tastes classic just tasting it for the first time. I feel like. Yeah, it's a would quintessential, like quintessential sort of Trappist beer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the yeah. vibe I was getting from your description. Meanwhile, I've got this lovely, immediately can smell the lactose on the nose. You get this nice sweet, but not not, not sickly, just a nice sweet hit. And you get some roasted, you get the cacao coming off of the roasted malts. So it's, again, yeah, it, it, almost a very light rem like note of... um like a high um grade hot chocolate. Oh. I, I just a light note, so it's not the main bit, but just like a oh yes, there's like that cacao is there and it's it's really cacao and there's some uh there's that milky sweetness. Uh and then underneath is this uh the main nose is is it, it's actually quite light nose, but the main nose is still this like maltiness. But um but yeah you get this 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 hint of oh really rich milk and chocolate um it poured with maybe a third of a finger of head and it's still there um mm. so it's what would i say five point something five point eight percent it's um reasonably carbonated um but you can tell just like close to six percent is coming through in the mouthfeel. It's just got a little, little more thickness than the last beer I had, which is good, because it's actually that the, the any worries about that uh, lactose giving it just too much thickness, too much sweetness, uh, is is not. It's it's not there. Like it's that that lactose is there. It's giving. I think they called it milk sugar or something in the flavor text, and I think that's a good way of distinguishing it because this does not taste like a beer that's put, had lactose put in it. It's got just enough that it's like doing something to the taste, but it's not thickening it. It's not a creamy tasting stout. Um, definitely roasted characters. Um, there is that the lactose is giving a lovely sweetness right from the start. It's just as the initial taste is this surge of um, more cacao, and then as the cacao fades, this it's held like it's basically the taste curve is kind of being held together by this constant light sweetness. And then you're getting the roasted notes after the cacao is faded. And actually what I'm really liking about this is I had, I have to look for the hazelnut, um, which I think is a good thing. Cause as Chad mentioned, hazelnut is, is a thing best enjoyed in small doses, I think. And so it's doing something in the taste, but it's not, like if they didn't have it on there, you, you you I think the average person wouldn't notice. It's not like I'm drinking Nutella, for example. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually have to admit, my first one of our first experiences with craft ale was some cheap uh, local Oklahoma, where we're originally from, Oklahoma. Local. There was some local Oklahoma brewery that did a hazelnut ale, mm. and we must. I I don't want to say how old we are. <laughs> I'll just say we were uh, younger, and it really put me off at first. I thought that that's what craft ale was, right. was that kind of a flavor, and it was just overbearing. It tasted like a, I don't know, it was, it was just overbearing. Yeah. And so yeah, I think we were kind of, beer. <laughs> ended up not coming back to craft ale for a little while because we were so put off by that experience. And it turned out, no, that was just one bad yeah. ale from a bad brewery. 
Mm. Yeah, so this is thankfully the opposite where I'm noticing the hazelnut on the tip of my tongue sort of near the end of the finish, although the finish is, again, again, like the last beer I had with you guys, um, quite long, and it's mostly the roasted notes. And again, that that the lactose is just offset, just there enough to offset that roastedness. But as the finish, as progresses, the lactose dips away. And that's when I, that's like the moment was when the milky sweetness is going away. That's the moment I'm noticing, ah, yes, the hazelnut is there. It's been there the whole time, but it's just so much in the back seat. And it's like until other things have receded, and they're like, oh, right, this, like I, I jokingly mentioned Nutella, but like, oh, yeah, there is there is this Nutella-like light note, like I'm talking 20 seconds into the finish, right? And that's just because the the milky sweetness is almost all gone, but I've got this lovely backbone of just roasted, slightly dry finish. And then it's like, ah, and, on to- and in there is hazelnut. Um, this is a really good beer, and I think, especially after, Chad, you mentioned, like, hazelnuts. I didn't actually think when I bought this how tenuous a hazelnut beer could be. <laughs> um, and this is doing it exactly how you want. Like, it's there. It's, awesome. it's They're doing things, but it's not, you know, it's um, it's like um, oh, the, the, in the Sound of Music, the, the Baroness, you know, hazelnut should be, you know, Tasted, not felt, or felt, not tasted. You know, that's a, <laughs> I'm butcher the paraphrase, right. but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's having the impact, but unless I look for it, I I wouldn't have noticed. And and it's but it's clearly not, it's not just like a oh we put some hazelnut, but no, don't worry, it's not there. Like it it's clearly there the whole time. It's just at the right stage in, in, in relative to the other things. Yeah. So yeah, that reminds me of the Winston Churchill quote that the I believe it's Churchill that the best martini is a glass of gin while looking at a bottle of vermouth. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is how I. I mean, it's slightly stronger than how I make martinis. But uh, in the in the uh, lockdowns, we did um, like so. I live with five other people, um, and we did a pub crawl where we did up our rooms as different bars and made signature cocktails. So that we could have a night out, you know, this is like oh, part of 2020, yeah. right? Um, and I made a lounge and I made uh, martinis and I knocked everyone flat on their asses because I forgot <laughs> that not everyone's used to my martini, which is just a glass of frozen gin and a few splashes of vermouth. Yeah, yeah, as it should be. Yeah, yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's our beers. I'm going to really... So this, this I suspect, I'll nurse just because that finish is really nice and long, and I, there's no reason to, to rush through it. But we uh, last time we spoke, we were we talked a lot about the mechanics, but we didn't really talk as much about the narrative and the aesthetics. And uh, Curtis, you sort of teased the notion of the aesthetics on the different levels being different because you chose not to go sort of more connected world. But um, I've been super curious on... Uh, yeah, on just like the the non-mechanic gameplay design stuff, the like choices, the narrative, the music, and that stuff. Because obviously, I I know you guys put a lot of thought to these parts, and I get that you might not want to talk too too much about the narrative because <laughs> the narrative needs to be played. But I thought maybe you could just um talk speak a little more about about those choices. For example, like let's start with just level aesthetics. Like what um. Yeah, so 
you you had the idea that uh, if everything was stitched together, you were stuck in the aesthetics. But then, if you when you decoupled that, where did that put you guys? And and like artistically, what what did what did you like about that freedom slash work? How much should they be, be, we be prepared as players to be like nothing's the same? Uh, I would say you know uh, I have some. I one thing that I'm proud of is that we did have a fair amount of variety within uh, a very clear, I think very, if I can say so, very strong aesthetic sense. Uh, one of the things that I'm proud of is that we did, in fact, I think, find, I, I would be willing to say, absolutely the correct aesthetic that went with this. And it wasn't automatic. You know, I think a good aesthetic uh, when people view it, will feel like it was obvious and easy, and in fact, it was everything. But it was it was so hard to arrive at the aesthetic sensibilities of the game. We had no inclination that it would turn out like this at all. When we first started the game, we had no idea what it would become, and so it was a it was absolutely a journey to get there. And uh, I think the thing that brought it along the whole way was like yeah, a more conceptual idea of recursion and strange loops and that underpins essentially every aspect of it and it even ended up underpinning the aesthetics and now up on this side of it that seems obvious <laughs> but at the other side at the beginning it was not so it was not obvious at all so we tried all sorts of things you know um as far as like aesthetic sensibilities we tried like hi-fi we tried lo-fi we're like small indie guys we're just like one and a half dudes we ended up getting a publisher but we had no idea we were going to get a publisher but when we first started right so uh, we were trying to do things that like you know we could realistically do on our own being people that don't have i don't have a formal artistic training i have a you know a musical training and you know some programming programming chops um so uh but it ended up that uh, three-dimensional fractals uh, just ended up being exactly what we needed and what the game needed and what we ended up being pretty good at. Because, like, one of the things that we're good at, being musicians who uh, have programming chops, is we had made a fair amount of music uh, procedurally, mm -hmm. and we were pretty familiar with procedural uh, techniques. And it turned out that a procedural visual technique was something that we could do. You know, mm, interesting. Uh, and so it's not like um, it came naturally. It's more like experimenting with lots of stuff. You know, at one point, I remember it's hilarious to think back on, actually. I remember blasting Skinny Puppy and thinking we were going to do something with like a very kind of gnarly industrial vibe that was much messier. And it's hilarious now because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Skinny Puppy, but it made no sense. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. Also, um, I think that dates us all, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, sure. yeah, yeah, you know, ended up um, just brushing up on, uh, in particular, the, the family of techniques that I think drove everything, visually at least, um, but ended up bleeding into everything else, uh, was something called find distance fields, um, which, is, which is just a kind of subset of ray marching and ray tracing. Um, so it's this idea with fine distance builds in particular. Uh, nor so rather, I'll start with uh, ray marching in particular. Normally what you're saying is we're going to like a ray tracing. We'll just say uh, we've got some stuff in the world, mm -hmm. right? We're going to start at the camera 
we're at a position and to figure out what to show on the screen we're going to move forward a fixed amount mm -hmm. and then whenever we hit something we'll look up what's the color of the thing we hit what direction is it facing and that's going to tell us how to display it on the screen right that's, that's the essential nature right. of ray tracing yeah so sign distance fields is a, a kind of subset of that and it's a different variation on it and really what it's saying is that uh, we're going to do the same general idea we're going to move forward until we hit something but instead of doing it at this fixed depth amount instead we're going to say how far away uh, every step of the way how far away is the closest surface and it could be in any direction it could oh. be behind you to the right to the left and it will give you a value saying positive or negative if it's positive yeah. that means you're outside of a surface. If it's negative, that means you're inside of a surface. So you need to backtrack. So what you end up doing is you have a framework for analytical geometry. So you can actually describe things mathematically, shapes. And it ends up being one of the most fun ways to do that is fractals. And right. In particular, three-dimensional mandel balls and three-dimensional mandel boxes, which is actually the thing that we ended up using the most. So... Uh, once we started hacking with that, it was just like hilariously, obviously, clearly the the way you, thing to be doing. the way your game needed to be, right? Because what came first was the concept and then the mechanic, and the, it was all gray boxes. You know, I, the first time I showed right. it to Chad, it was just a platform with a chair with this weird squid-looking guy. It was the first iteration of Elric, the character you meet in the demo, um, and even at that stage, I think it kind of had this energy to it, which is why we went with the idea. Yeah, I think the, I think you mentioned that last time we like the the first time you guys sat with us. I think I remember you talking about that iteration where that really sparked the vibe of where the game was gonna be was was chair dude. Yeah, because I think for us, I mean, I I'm sure it's different for everybody. Um, from for us, I think uh, strangely enough, I think emotions. Uh, drive the direction of our design concepts, and so is that is that feeling of of that traveling forward, yet somehow not getting anywhere. Uh, you definitely we... have both done PhDs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the concept of the eternal return, right? Yeah, um, like that. Just I love that feeling, and um, that's what came first. Right, the feeling, and then how you work with it is what came next. Um, and and it just developed. It flowered out. So the visuals dropped out from that. The music dropped out from that. The story was actually one of the last things. The narrative aspect was one of the last things so, that dropped out. So this was the thing I was curious about, because I remember when we first spoke, uh, there was obviously less knowledge around the narrative. But like last episode, we talked a bunch about how your game design was linear because the narrative is so important. And obviously... We don't want to talk about details of the narrative because the narrative needs to be. Oh wow, my brain went reached for a word and got endured, and that's clearly not the word you guys want me to use. <laughs> uh, I would accept it. Happily. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I but, think that would uh, be yeah, apt. Experienced is the word I was looking for. Um, shows you where my mental state's been lately. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm curious. So it obviously means a lot. Um, so. But the original premise, like you guys didn't come up with a story and then wrap a game around it, right? So I'm really curious about, given like 
you developed a game that is very much the intertwining of gameplay and narrative. Um, how that evolved sort of over top of the... Like you had some clarity on gameplay from the get-go and, you know, maybe vibes and aesthetic, but how the narrative became such a pillar of, of the game as well in that development process. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it comes back to um, that thing that Curtis mentioned about us being more emotional, intuitive, I would say, about mechanical things like this. So in we, we whenever we were starting to work on our, you know, this, this idea that we're going to make a game, we really had no idea what it was going to be. We tried all these different ideas. Most of them didn't go anywhere or very, or very interesting. Uh, this one, there was something that, you know, we both looked at and we just knew that there was something here and it was about figuring out how to draw it out. And part of the thing that was there was this emotional kind of um, intuition that, there, that there's a feeling that comes along with this strange awe of this kind of infinity. And I would say that that emotion, I would say, was the kernel for a narrative that grew out of it. But really, it's this this kind of emotion that we're trying to capture. And also, I would say some conceptual elements that came along with it. And as you play the game, um, the, they, these threads, you, uh, the closer you look, are kind of actually just throughout the entire thing. Um, and I would say that actually the the they kind of became this like symbiosis where like yes we came up with the idea of the nesting first before the narrative but at a certain point whenever we really focused on the narrative and we, we thought about the story that we really wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell it it flipped around where suddenly we were actually changing the level flow we were changing how mm. the levels were built the mechanics that were built we actually completely rebuilt um two levels entirely uh, all the puzzles and everything from scratch at one point um, as well as added some glue content i would say throughout and it really became this the symbiosis where they like fed into each other where like yes this this kind of initial emotional and conceptual thrust kind of was born and then out of that came a narrative but in defining the narrative we realized that we we had to make the world like reflect it and part of that we, you know, a little while ago, we talked about how there's this progression throughout levels of aesthetic changes mm. as well as mechanic changes. One of the important things about that is is that it allowed us to change it in order to uh, correctly, I think, communicate the kind of evolving tonality throughout the, the game. So, you know, there's this evolution, not in chronology of real time, but I would say there's kind of an evolution in your understanding of chronology of events and this kind of you know, almost fractal-like distillation of, of things that you find out about the character and their experiences. And that itself has a kind of arc, and that's the thing that we wanted to communicate totally throughout the game. Oh, you've, you've really yes. piqued me on that, because um, obviously the, the demo only goes so far, so the, the setup of the demo in a sort of gives you a notion of the character is has certain things that happen you, you have some understanding of relationships and then you get thrust into this very weird world with different sorts of stakes communicated by the, the entities you meet in in the first couple puzzle levels so uh i am super intrigued that uh, and i'm not surprised that it 
loops back and goes back to the the protagonist, the early stuff. But that um, yeah, that that tantalizes giving more meat to to what the narrative might be. Um, so yeah, that that's also I mean, it it really does sound like um, like the advantage of you guys being a couple of guys making a game that you mm-hmm. want to make because that sounds like to me the ideal way of developing a creative project which is letting it feel itself out um you know because if you were just making a puzzle game you would figure out how to make those 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 compasses work because you have to publish it <laughs> um but uh so so i, I guess i uh, yeah i'm now more intrigued to get, i guess if anything i'm 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 surprised that the I mean, there's only so much you can do in a 20 minute demo but i guess i'm surprised that they're the the demo sort of is quite puzzle heavy versus narrative light but i guess that's how you sell a game because it's a game <laughs> uh, but but this leads me to the question of given that they're intertwined this way etc um how did you I've, I've i've never been able to ask them this but how did you figure out where your demo like which chunk is demo yeah, I mean, there's no right answer, I think, is the real answer. But there's whatever is appropriate for the game. Our game, thankfully, um, was just really, it was very obvious and very amenable to a demo because there's this narrative linear aspect to it. So yeah, and it you have distinct sim- levels. Exactly, we have yeah. distinct levels. It's uh, got narrative and it's linear. It's very simple to just decide, okay, where do we cut it off? Yeah. There's other games where it's much harder. Like if you've got a strategy game, what is the demo is a much harder thing. And in fact, having talks with the publisher, they, uh, you know, Iceberg Interactive, no. uh, they, I think, were a little bit. They're a little bit more cautious about demos because they deal with a lot of games of more different types, and a lot of games have a very hard time being put into demo form. And even for instance, uh, having a demo that can be updated can be a very big challenge for a game that was not made to be demoable. Right. But thankfully our game was always very easy about that. I was always I always had the, you know, the demo was constantly updating with the game. It was never an issue. It was very Oh, so you like you scoped the demo reasonably early on? I mean, it's very yeah, I would we, say- just, we knew exactly the form of the entire game. Uh I I don't know exactly how far back, but the the structure right. were kind of uh, if you were to be mean to us, you'd say we were formalists or structuralists. And if we were in Soviet un- in the Soviet Union, we'd be, you know, shot. Um, <laughs> so we knew the the structure of the thing right. pretty early on, um, including where you would cut it off for a demo. And then oh. at that point, it was just about maintaining it and making sure that it functioned on it. Oh, that's super interesting. I mean, I guess it it makes sense. I just I I mean I've never made a game. I think I wouldn't have even thought about the demo cutoff point until someone's like, "So you get to do a demo?" It's like, "Oh, probably." Oh shit, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think for this game, you know, we'll see with our next game. We we may struggle a lot more, but with this one, you know, there's basically a few things that you're trying to communicate with with the demo. One is uh, an understanding of the basic premise. Yeah. Uh, another is an understanding of the basic narrative, especially important for this game. Another is some familiarity with the mechanics. Uh, you want to set them up to be interested, uh, but not give them so much that they already become bored. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want to leave them off wanting more, ideally. 
So I think for us, you know, having the, the, the way just the structure of the game is, um, it really was clear that like, okay, there's like this part where you're opening up and it's more narrative. And then there's the part that's more puzzle heavy. This demonstrates the two main facets of the game. So, and we need to show both of those because if we don't get enough of either one, people will buy the game under the wrong premise. But yeah, like, we really right. want to make sure that people buy the game knowing the experience that they're going to have. So we want to make sure that both parts were well represented. And then it was just about finding the right beat and the part at the end of the demo, I think from like a narrative point of view is kind of setting you up like here's kind of a little bit of a lore dump. And it's, it's you know, kind of setting you up for, I would say, your kind of large term, long term kind of like goal in the end game fiction uh, was a good kind of ending point to say like, okay, now you know what you're supposed to be going to do. Please yeah. Me. <laughs> kind of, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. I uh, One thing that I've been curious about is uh, like, obviously it's a puzzle game, et cetera, but like how long is the like the average playthrough of, of this game good question um you know we, our idea of how long it is has changed, changed several, several times. times in fact chad, chad and i had a wager <laughs> to see who would be right and it would be wrong because i thought it would be shorter chad thought it would be longer i think it's ended up somewhere in between so if you're really that, that like, is not how I would color the how that like man I think in four dimensions, <laughs> um, you could in theory get through the game in four hours, and I've seen people do that. I was going to say um, like the the speed run approach, which is not something you guys probably necessarily want because it that's the skip the cutscenes. Exactly. Yeah. So if you were, if you were to literally just like we've done playthroughs. Uh, by the way, this is, this is a challenging thing about this kind of a game, as opposed to like a game that is uh, more combinatorial. Like if mm. you're playing a strategy game, you can get a real play test of it in maybe like 30 minutes. And it's like, right. yeah, we're going to test the beginning, middle, and ending of a match. That's like a good yeah, stress yeah, yeah. test. This is hard because there's so much content in it. Uh, it's like, you know, three hours. If you know all the solutions and you can't skip all the cutscenes, uh, it's still a good three-hour dedication of your life right. to get through the thing. So it was, you know, challenging to test it from that point of view. Uh, but yeah, I'd say that was the lower bound. Maybe if you were to do a straight-up speed run, where you were trying to cut corners and break the game, you could maybe yeah. get it down to two and a half. But I think realistically, four is the lower bound, uh, but nine is the upper bound. It's okay, so it's range. that's that is a wide range. Um. I would say oh, five and a half is maybe the average from Steam reviews. Right. Or maybe six. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, right. five and a half, six is, is about the average of data. Yeah. Um, so now you've piqued my interest on how testing went. Because, um, I mean, some people don't do enough testing. But also, it's, it's I mean, for our listeners, uh, I think it's it's a fairly opaque part of the development process because it's not often talked about but with a puzzle game that's also in a very unique environmental uh mechanically environmental world i that must be such a challenge to get testers to like you, you want like idiots like me who sequence break and then find weird physics holes and fall through the universe presumably to like put it through its paces yeah, I mean, so 
we thankfully uh, we had a kind of small team, if you could call it that, really just friends and family mm-hmm. that put us through its paces as it was developing in its very young, immature stage, right? And so that was good because uh, these people were always on top, especially look, we're we're not quite Finto. I would say we're Nano, we're <laughs> <laughs> Nano developer. Yeah, uh, it's just Chad and me. We ended up getting you know a couple of people to help with character art, but it's basically just Chad and me. Um, and uh, so that was good. These people, they just um, they would do like your initial, just like gut check. Yeah. Does this feel good? Does this work? Did I obviously break it? And you would be surprised how much just having somebody else who's never seen your game, they don't know how understand it works, they don't know anything about your stupid concept. <laughs> right. They, they don't know. We had this feeling. They don't know anything about that. Right? Yeah. They just play this for, for the first time. You'd be surprised how much stuff you catch just from that alone. So just having that regular check-in of uh, these people coming in every step of the way uh, and giving us feedback was invaluable, but at a certain point, it becomes more mature, and like that's that doesn't cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that the advantage we got—I um, don't think we would have had this if we didn't get a publisher. We we were lucky enough to team up with Iceberg, uh, and they actually had professionals. Oh, I was going to say, so Iceberg brought QA. Yes, they brought in an actual QA team. These people were professionals. It made me feel unprofessional. <laughs> I'll put it like that. This was like, you know, it's like, you know, Mar- you know, calling up Marcellus Wallace and we're sitting in the wolves. Um, <laughs> you know, these people came in and they like, they scientifically knew how to break your, your shit. Right? right. It was like, you thought, you thought your game was stable. We're here to prove you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they scientifically break your shit and then they document it very well. And so what you end up getting is, uh, a long list of all of the bugs in your game. Yeah. Right? And so it was my job as they were going through it to uh, try to smash the bugs as they found them. But they could find them a lot faster than I could. Yeah, because you're right? n- not several people. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but they we ended up getting it to where, you know, there was a, a collection of what they put them in priorities. Yeah. So yeah. we had like high... Uh, medium, low, and very low. I ended up getting smashed all of the high, uh, and so very high, high, yeah. and medium were ended up all getting uh, nice. Tricks. So, yeah, so there there ended up being a collection of uh, bugs that you know I couldn't quite get to. I I know sometimes somebody they're like the kind of thing that like you know maybe yeah you go off really the beaten path and like you really do this thing that most people wouldn't do. Yeah, I mean, but uh, you know. Again, we talked. We spoke about this um, last episode, but like the, the the notion of like it's okay if it is good enough, right? Like you can't just try and fix all the bugs because it's something as complicated as a game and its and its engine. Like there will be bugs made out of quick killing bugs, but also sunk costs. Like it's not worth. It's fine. You know what? And if it's not like a game breaking, destroy your save, crash everything bug. Fuck it. Who cares? Bethesda doesn't. Why should you? <laughs> my my philosophy was always just like, uh, you should always be able to get through the game, period. There yeah. should never be an excuse where the game breaks. And so I can tell you absolutely that will never happen. Yeah, You'll well, you said that's, that's the very high, right? High, right. Yeah. And, and in fact, just not beyond that, uh, to speak infrastructurally, a lot of bugs 
and a lot of uh, efficiency concerns with programming, I think can be solved infrastructurally, which is to say that you should, uh, by the design of your code, make it impossible for certain things to, to, to occur or make it so such things are absolutely guaranteed. Um, and so the design of the game when the way that it saves state makes it such that even if you you know can get soft locks and there are i know of them mm. if you have some soft locks that are in the game you can always quit the game restart and it will always fix it you'll never right. get hard there's no hard locks in the game it's impossible by design by the infrastructure of the interesting game itself, you cannot get hard locks so that was one of the best decisions I ended up making because, you know, sometimes you, you see a person and I get it. Like I, nobody likes to hit a bug, mm -hmm. but it's always much better where you hit a bug. It's kind of annoying. Uh, you quit, you come back and then it's fixed. Yeah. That's yeah. way better. <laughs> like I'm much happier that I got to fix, you know, that I get to finish the game. Yeah. Could so you talk to discord and OBS? Do. Because currently, uh, I don't think their shit's working properly <laughs> on my computer. I, I mean, the one thing I'll say, you know, for, for the solution that we have here um, and just like kind of broadly speaking, it, it's it's really particular to the game and the way the game works. So the, the reason is, is because there's some deterministic qualities to um, what is done in the game and how you make progression. There are other kinds of contexts and domains where you don't have the luxury to have an entry point or uh, such determinism to be able to. Yeah, have have recovery elements that are so predictable, and certainly things that are network related. I think are oh, yeah, some I mean, of the most complicated things that you could try to get to work consistently. Um, so I don't envy the people that work on on Discord or, or OBS. I'm sure they're it's a nightmare. Yeah, but I, what I will say is that regardless of how complex the domain is, there are decisions that you can make early on about, especially how you handle things like state that can make things easier or harder on yourself later. Right. And if you don't put in the thought to do this, almost assuredly you're gonna land on the thing that's harder, right? You, you need to put some thought into it. I would take it further. I would say that as I've grown as a programmer, I have realized that state is absolutely the king. That is everything, all your problems and all your solutions relate to state. So if you can, Think in terms of the state of your program, whatever it is, be it a game or otherwise, mm -hmm. and how you're, you know, you've got inputs, you've, you've got transformations, and that transformations will take the state from one thing, transform it into another thing, and then you have outputs. The closer you can get to thinking about that and then making your program think like that, uh, the better it will be and the closer it will match to what, to the behavior you want it to exhibit. Right. Where people, I think, get mixed up is where people start thinking in terms of abstractions that are not inherent to the actual thing that's occurring on the computer. That's where bugs occur because, uh, especially gnarly bugs that don't, that infrastructurally cannot be fixed or can totally fuck up a user's experience, right. uh, is because they're, they don't reflect the reality of the program. Right. The reality of the program is that there are bytes, you know, bits of data stored in RAM on a computer. There's uh, instructions yeah. that a computer will go through to transform them into a different set of bits. And your goal is to make the output of the monitor and the speakers give the correct output. That is your job. <laughs> so, you, I mean, 
as a logician, I love hearing this because what you're saying is, don't forget you're just working with a Turing machine. Yes, yes. absolutely. It's absolutely so. That's absolutely. one of the biggest. If I could impart anything upon, if anyone's like, I want to make games and as as a programmer, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the biggest things I would say is make sure you understand that computers are a machine. They are a Turing machine. Uh, von Neumann, technically, if we're going to get you know more technical, yeah. but a von Neumann architecture machine. You need to understand what that means, how it behaves, and how to actually operate it. It would be like uh, you're operating some machine at a factory, but you don't know what all the levers do. I feel like sometimes, unfortunately, there are programmers that get in this place where they don't know what all the levers do on the machine, and but they're pulling them. Well, like so. <laughs> so I think it's it's like one layer of abstraction away, which is they know yes. that in situations certain situations pulling this lever will have the outcome they're desiring but they don't really understand why that's the situation the situation and the lever are mapped to each other which means similar situations will appear to them as that situation and that's where the problem arises yes exactly because it's a problem of conception and of of abstraction and in fact i would say abstraction is one of the things i don't get me wrong i think abstraction can be very useful but, you know, sweeping away details at times can be extraordinarily costly, right? This uh, is literally what my dissertation was about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get on my, my, you know, grandstanding box over here for a moment, um, there, there's a very famous quote from uh, a computer scientist named Donald Knuth, which is that uh, premature optimization is the root of all evil. I think that this is a horribly misquoted uh like excerpt from him, or at least misunderstood. Uh, Donald Knuth uh, knew how to write very efficient code. He's the kind of guy that would write his own try implementation for string handling in just some random console like program. He, but I think that the thing that he was really getting at is that you should understand the problem that you're solving fundamentally first. Personally, the, the thing that I like to throw around is kind of a counter to that, which I think, at least from my kind of uh, ethos, I think, makes more sense, which is premature abstraction is the root of all evil. I think if you're rushing too far into inventing narratives for yourself or what you're doing or what this code means on some fictional level, you're giving yourself more problems, your code's going to be less performant, harder to maintain, harder to expend, extend. I think starting simple, understanding the problem, and if you don't have enough information to make a great solution early on, Make a deletable solution. Make a solution that you're not afraid of just removing and replacing with something equally simple but more appropriate. And that, just in general, you're going to get further faster. And especially for, like, if you're an indie developer, right? This is the thing about being an indie developer in particular is you have to be a bit of a Renaissance person, right? You have to be able, you have to, be able to command multiple domains. It's very hard to be, on one hand, I have this emotion, I have this conceptual idea, and I want people to feel something. At the same time, how do I make a program that mechanically induces them to feel that? Those are very hard things to balance. So I think that what Chad's saying about simplicity is absolutely true, because if things are simple, if you can delete them, whenever your idea about what this is develops and changes, which it absolutely will, and it has to, right? Your implementation of it can has the agility to be able to change with it 
um, and still be performant, stable, right? Um, and exhibit the behavior you needed to. So it's a hard thing to balance. I mean, I think that this is philosophy adult jumping in, which is like the the work <laughs> I'm currently doing is not in logic; it's in general formal stuff because the parallels in AI and implementation of just processes that are not handled by humans is essentially that same problem of abstraction without a tether to what's going on. So you look at AIs approving mortgages and it's like, well, the black box has (laughs) said that like African-American people in the States aren't reliable. So we're just going to turn all of them down. It's the same. These are all the same symptoms of the same. I don't want to derail us too much, but it's very much the same problem, which is if you throw a program, which is just a blunt tool uh, at a problem, without understanding how to what all the factors are let alone which ones you can afford to abstract away then you're obviously going to have a very poor output and this is what you guys are saying which is understand the problem and understand the costs of the abstraction or idealization of a specific approach and you can't do the second part without spending enough time on the first part and even then you might screw up the second part and i think this is where a lot of Water problems lie but anyway uh I, <laughs> if i could uh derail us just slightly yeah, yeah. more <laughs> my i'll throw out chad maybe mad at me i apologize chad, but, um i'll throw out a big soapbox thing real quick which is just to say that um the machine learning kind of i think trend that is happening i think there's some interesting stuff about it you know to be fair we are ourselves do make use of some of it in the game although we're mostly not Mostly, it's all procedural techniques where we are analytically generating either music or geometry or whatever, and it's um, something that we've commanded, right? Mm. But we do use specifically some machine learning techniques on the visuals that happen in the memories. Right. Um, but my my issue with that stuff in particular is that, uh, and it, I think it goes larger than just creative arts, but it definitely applies to creative arts which is that these algorithms that are trained on data sets don't function without the data sets, right? So you have these algorithms which can oftentimes, you know, in the right hands, I think generate some really interesting, amazing visuals. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that that was uh, derived from human creativity. These things would not generate anything if they had not analyzed both the world and people. So it's a little bit strange to me that people take out of that, that that means that human creativity in the world can now be devalued when in fact they rely on the value of human creativity and its perception of the world. So it's a little sad to me that we're getting into this place, I think, where um, maybe human creativity will both be uh, plundered and devalued. I hope we don't get there. I hope In this economy? Somehow... Yeah. <laughs> I know we could go. I we could go yeah. even further, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'll leave yeah. it at that. I'll leave it at. Uh, yeah. I hope that we understand that human creativity is uh, worthwhile. Uh, we don't just uh, plunder it. That's more than fair. I mean, you were you were called out before this uh, soapbox. So did you do you do you have uh, anything you wanted to add to that, Chad? I mean, I agree with everything that you said. Uh, I, I think what I would add to it is machine learning techniques are, I would say, part of a long 
history and tradition of I'm using, using um, tools and technologies in, in creative endeavors. And uh, it's obviously like a very obvious thing to say that this is a human history long endeavor. Ever since we've been singing or whatever, you know, along the way or not there long after has come technology to, you know, assist us. To give a, a pretty interesting um, kind of example of how this can be just more fundamental is if you look at the music of J.S. Bach. One of his greatest works and kind of, I would say, kind of heralding a whole era is uh, The Well-Tempered Clavier. And this is a work of amazing fugues and all these different kinds of pieces with the fundamental premise being that it's being played on an instrument using well-tempered tuning. What is that? Now, if you're not familiar with music, what it is is that normally back then, traditionally, unlike they didn't have pianos, they had like clavichords and things like this, harpsichords. Um, a keyboard would be designed to work in a particular tuning, and it would mean that certain voicings of certain uh, harmonies would be correct, or at least perfectly tuned. And as you get further away from those in the harmonic series, they become more and more slightly imprecise. The well-tempered kind of clavier, this idea of equal temperament, basically made it to where we fixed the, the semitones and the octave, which effectively makes all of the harmonies slightly out of tune, but you know enough that it's acceptable. But what it meant is that if you were wanting to write music that was more widely modulating, that had more complex harmonies, that traveled further away from the tonic, you could do so and retain the tonality, the tuning as you did so. For J.S. Bach, uh, that's amazing because he wanted to write all this really intricate, of you know, nuanced music that would iterate on this almost kind of like monomalistic, like maniacal, like sensibility of iteration on just little like three note melodies. And so it allowed him to write a kind of music that he wasn't really able to perform before. Now I'm saying all this because this is still true of any newer technology, right? So every time we have the introduction of computers, the introduction of machine learning, whatever, you name it, it's another tool that gives us new um, ways to work in a creative endeavor that will enable us to express ourselves somewhat differently. However, all that said, I will say that as we get further and further into these kinds of uh, techniques and tooling, that I would say have a sense of almost automation to them. There's like a more complex expression for the input. One thing to keep in mind is that you need to be considerate of the amount of input to the output that you get. If you're using a system, it doesn't matter if it's machine learning or not. And the amount of input that you prompt it with is minimal, you're gonna get a great homogenization of the output, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that not necessarily that it's bad, but rather that it's going to be more similar to anything else that anybody else would make with it. So whenever you see these systems going around online, it's like, oh, you type a sentence and it draws a picture, right? It's, you see one of them, you think it's kind of clever. You see five of them, you're like, oh, I get it. You see 20, you're bored. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that is true. But that doesn't mean that machine learning is bad or machine learning can't make anything that's like truly interesting. It just means that probably if you're wanting to do something like that, you're going to need to use an infrastructure or a system where you're going to give yourself more input to work with. It's probably not going to be as easy to work with as the thing you had before. And it's going to look more like a normal artistic endeavor where you're sitting there like riffing on things and trying ideas and, and experimenting. 
Uh, so I, I just wanted to say all that because like, I think that it's a little bit easy to like hit the machine learning, you know, field as like, you know, just kind of like burn it down. This, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm kidding. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that because I think um, one of the things, especially from the public um, perspective, is machine learning is just this magic button. Like we're at we're at the stage of not understanding machine learning as like computers were in in like maybe the seventies or eighties even like where people knew they were powerful and could do things to, to the point where they could do anything. And I don't know what the limitation is, and I don't know how that would be bound. And so like one of the things that like um one of the few things I do in ethics, for example, is I talk about the the actual true cost of 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 AI and machine learning because like GPT three it takes a hell of a lot of cycles to calculate a data set and it's all bespoke basically. So it sounds like you can do everything, but actually you need a very curated, specific, large enough data set for it to have good output. And then it needs a lot of computer cycles to crunch through that. That has a carbon footprint that is not mentioned in any ethics of AI. Ethics of AI is so concerned with weird like Terminator shit. And it should just be like the same <laughs> things that we're pissed off at crypto about, right? Like, it's just like, what are we doing Absolutely. to the planet with a carbon footprint? And, and as you're pointing out, like there is no way around it. If you want something like GPT-3 to have really good syntax and semantics and seamlessness you need to burn a lot of the amazon like and and it's because you need to have a good well curated data set and that's fine you just have to recognize that if you don't do that human artistry at the front end you get garbage at the at the back end yeah i i would add to that um absolutely the 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 impact on the climate and uh, the, the earth and all this is, is incredibly important, but even more so, I wouldn't say more so, but equally so, uh, is that it reinforces traditional power structures in a way that I don't like, you know? So who has this data? Can, can you, you know, as, as a random person that grew up, pick up, pick a smaller, Lithuania, you know, whatever. Do you have this data set? No. Google, some yeah. research institute, Amazon, they have that data, right? You cannot just do the same things that they do. You're a big corporation or you're a government or you're part of some institute. It, it really is, uh, I would say, pulling back on a lot of the efforts of computers to democratize art. Things like the internet and computers, I think, give us a way to spread information seamlessly and to express ourselves. You know, if you have a, I mean, yes, there's a fundamental, like I would say, like cost to getting into having a cell phone or a computer or something like that. But once you have one of them, because it's able to run any program that it can run on it, you can have effectively all the modular sense, right? You can, right. You can do all these different things and express yourself in so many different ways at that one initial cost. But if, if the cost to entry is you need to have spied on millions of people or plundered the internet for decades of data. Yeah, like only a small number of people where a certain amount of power is hyper consolidated have access to that. And it's not really something that I'm really happy to see proliferate and gain yet even more traction. I like this to see us go the other direction more. Yeah.
I mean, uh, my son to say I, exactly. I think I think we're probably all on the same page. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys because I know music's really, I mean, your background, but also like really important to you. We sort of we've touched gameplay and loops and narrative, and last time we spoke, I mean, the first time we spoke so much about this game was about loops etc and i'm just curious how the sonic landscape developed in the game and and if you guys could die speak speak to how that developed because frankly we don't hear a lot about that in in when people talk about video games but i i suspect you have you had strong thoughts and ideas and and fruitions well you know as i, I feel like a fraud almost because before i said we were structuralists and formalists and uh, actually, with this game, I feel like, uh, in some ways, we threw that off musically. Because in the past, we absolutely have uh, th this idea, I should say, of strange loops and recursion and feedback is not a new one for us. The reason we arrived at it, honestly, almost we were avoiding it because it was so obvious to us. Uh, we had played with it a lot in the past musically. We were like one of our. Uh, big pieces we made as undergrads was a piece called strange loop number one by the way there was never a strange loop number two <laughs> i mean best kind of title <laughs> strange loop number one we absolutely went hard on the formalism of it so it was a piece where it's kind of bach in a sense uh where it was an electronic piece but it used prepared piano uh, samples and so mm -hmm. we played uh it started by playing a specific melody using pr the prepared piano samples and then it would go through a set of variations but the variations uh were a constant a cello rondo such that it was always speeding up over time hmm. and the thing is when you learn music what you find out of course is that rhythm is pitch uh, this right. is one of the you know things you realize at some point is that a is just a eighth notes at 440 hertz which is 440 times a second it's just eighth notes right so um what we did is we had the piece speed up faster and faster and faster and of course there's a, a kind of a, a exponential curve mm -hmm. such but that by the end of it the music has sped up so fast that it turns into a pitch mm -hmm. and then we take that pitch and then slowly it starts to form into notes with attacks and decays which then forms into the original melody that we had started the entire thing with, right? So it became a strange loop in and of itself. Um, it would, in theory, keep going forever, where it would play the melody, it would go through some variations, it would speed up, it would turn into the melody again, and do the same thing again. Right. So, um, you know, we had done a lot of stuff with that. We got a bit more into feedback, which is a kind of subset of that idea afterwards. But I think what happened with this is that um, we kind of went to a higher level. We really talked a lot of shit on abstractions before, but uh, <laughs> I do like abstractions. I think where I more happily love abstractions is in the kind of aesthetic emotional realm. I like abstractions a lot. And I think if you play this game uh, without getting too much into like, you know, spoilers of narrative or meaning, I think that abstractions are pretty important to the narrative aspect of the game it's the emotional aspect of the game and so musically the we ended up going way harder on that side of things than we did on the formalistic side of things 
So I think that feeling of being uh, stuck, the feeling of you know some cyclicality, some sense of recursion, was more important to us than the actuality of it. Right. right? Um, I don't know, Chad. Did you want to add on to that? No, I. I, I definitely agree with all that. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't aesthetic decisions that I think draw upon both literal techniques and, and kind of moral, I would say, you know, in, you know aesthetic kind of inclinations of this idea of, of infinity and recursion. Um, there's, there's a lot of techniques, for example, where you can sequence things in such a way where they technically don't repeat. Uh, or you can have this kind of um, ostinato or, or rhythmic recursion and, and kind of reiteration that I would say draws upon it. But, you know, I think in general with this game, with the music, we, yeah, we didn't want to make it just a rote technical exercise. We right. really were more concerned about conveying the emotions and and kind of yeah, I would say the emotional state of the character, and 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 or just like the story at different points. And I would say, for that reason, it was a bit of a challenge for us in that we've written a lot of music where the music was the only thing really happening, or it was paired by something that was to the service of the music. So we've done lots of performances with, you know, like kind of live generative systems or collaborative systems with these really large three visuals, mm -hmm. uh, and. But, you know, it's it's to the service of a musical performance, whereas this was a little bit more of there's a story we're trying to tell. There's a moment that's very important in telling that story that's happening right now. The music that's that needs to be here it needs to say something specific and it needs to say that in a way that supports the other aesthetic endeavors that we have. So, you know, can we correctly describe in this particular moment some kind of like... Uh, cold self disheartened cynicism or whatever you know, right. just pick some really you can't even articulate it exactly but doing that was it was a challenge for us and i think we were more concerned in making sure that we were getting those things across than scientifically you know using some infrastructure or some architecture to so, underpin the techniques yeah in particular so would it be Safe to say that you you needed the music to keep the aesthetic, but ultimately it was married to the linearity of the narrative. Yeah, I mean the narrative, the, like level game, sort of geometry. The narrative drove it much more, I think, than the geometry. And if and if I could improve one thing, I think it would have been to have a bit more. We have uh, there's a soundtrack you can buy it. Um, it's over an hour of music, if, and that's cutting down. So we had actually more, maybe more like an hour and a half of music in the game. And like we said, it's like a five-hour game. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good ratio. There's a lot of games that do a lot less than that. Uh, but a lot of that famously, is Super Mario Brothers has like what <laughs> loops that. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. It's like not only did we make a game, we made it like a double yeah. album, basically, yeah. <laughs> which is hard. You know, it's very it's hard to make that much music. A lot of it was uh, predicated on the narrative aspect. And, you know, in a certain sense, actually, it, the, when you listen to the soundtrack, um, you realize it's almost like a bit like this album Druck used. I don't know if you know this album. No, I'm going to look it up, though. 
fantastic album. I think it is, if I could, once again, I'll make a controversial statement. I think it's the best IDM album ever made. How do I spell um, that? You can't. <laughs> <laughs> How do I find that? <laughs> Just look up Aphex Twin. It's an Aphex oh, Twin Okay, album. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. should have guessed it was Aphex Twin. <laughs> Uh, but so the awesome thing he did, and this was not intentional, but looking back, I realized there was this weird um, parallel with that album, um, which is that that album is um, this album of IDM, you know, Twitch electronic music that's doing like, especially as like early 2000s, really glitch, but it has a sentimentality to it. And, and in particular, he tied that sentimentality back to something. It was a very interesting choice. He ended up writing a whole series of small pieces for um, mechanically controlled prepared piano. So it's an actual prepared piano. So in case people don't know, a prepared piano, what that means is a piano where you literally have put junk in the strings. You put like pieces of metal or rubber uh, such that when you press a key, it makes a percussion sound. Hmm. And it makes you realize that the piano is a percussion instrument. It's not a string instrument in the sense that it's not bowed. Mm -hmm. It's hammers hitting a string. And this sounds like a drum or something. So he wrote a set of these small pieces that were me mechanically controlled in this fashion. So anyways, our, this album, ours, for this uh, game, ended up having a kind of similar thing where it ended up being like a very, I think, sincere a very uh, sentimental uh, music musical landscape. And in particular, one instrument became very prominent, which was the guitar, because there's this character, Tal, who's mm -hmm. a guitarist, and he's a very important character in the game. And so guitar ended up being a very important instrument for the music. And so a lot of the music is based on uh, guitar. It's either uh, solo guitar music, or it will be processed guitar so there's a lot of processed strings you may not even realize it you know a lot of this stuff um it's like i don't necessarily expect somebody who's listening to understand oh this is obviously derived from a guitar mm -hmm. it's more like um there's this in the same way that i don't fundamentally understand like the weak force like the weak nuclear force or something whenever i go to touch something and then my hand stops right uh but I, I get in a kind of general abstracted sense that there's this interaction that's occurring. And that's what this is on the level of is like, that's why I'm saying abstraction is more important. Uh, so the guitar aspects of it and the processing of the guitar aspects ended up being a launching pad for what we, how we could compose, right. And it ended up shaping the direction of what ended up being um, composed in the end. So it ended up being a whole album really of kind of electronic, strange guitar music, even though a lot of it, if you listen to, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Interesting. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, now I'm going to have to pay more attention to my music as well. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I really respect the the primacy of the narrative and how far you went on sort of this is not to downplay the importance, but just like a, a more niche element than is as far as like what the average person is going to like notice they'll, they'll obviously process it. And you clearly have thought about 
what it means for someone to experience the game and but like sadly score is not a thing most people pay attention to or maybe that's a good thing because then you get to do things with it because they aren't paying explicit <laughs> attention that might be the the charitable read to the average person but like it matters a lot and it it can pull you out of a game and to have that dedication on keeping the narrative on track in multiple ways is super interesting um before we wrap up on on the soundtrack and so it's a puzzle game which which has sort of loops and things that change the world and obviously some people will progress through a puzzle at different paces how did you tackle the inherent sort of dynamicism of the world and the timing with the music uh i would say in a very simple way <laughs> if this was a, a different game i think that we may have thought about trying to make something more sophisticated and spoiler alert uh, for the next game we would make that might end up being something that's more of a concern but for this game because it's so segmented and the segmentations are so clear it gave, gave us a really strong push to frame them musically different. And then really it just became a question of, okay, within a certain kind of play mode, a certain kind of experience, um, what is our concern about what we're trying to achieve? And sometimes those things are a little bit more curated and a little bit more predictable about what they're trying to say and how long it's going to take. Right. And other times it's a little bit more open-ended, like the puzzle solving sections. In which case, you know, there's a few ways you can go about. One way is to make some very complicated system that tries to like interact with what they're doing exactly in the puzzles and like, you know, changes the music or, or something. And uh, certainly we've made things like that. But I think for us, we decided we were taking on so much that we just keep it simple. So our solution was we just made long enough loops that we felt like most people probably get through the thing that we're trying to get them through without hearing it loop. Or if it does loop, then it's not. They won't notice. Yeah. Yeah, I would say actually in the in uh, spheres of of um, soundtrack and sound design and, and music composition, there's actually a bit of a. a some people look down on if the, if you try to mimic uh, these kind of small interactions too much, and we call there's a term for it. We call it Mickey Mousing. Yeah. So if you're Mickey Mousing, <laughs> yes. that's like in Fantasia where uh, there's a little marimba head every time Mickey Mouse takes a step. Right. right? And we're going to go up because, you know, he's going up the stairs, so the pitches are going to go up. And when he goes down the stairs, when he falls down, it's going to sound like, we're going to do glissando down. Yeah. Right? yeah. So we call that Mickey Mousing, and the reason is because what you're doing is you're depicting physical, immediate, superficial elements, right? Where it's considered to be a little bit better if what you're doing is you're working, you know, at a higher level of abstraction, where it's like, okay, yeah, I understand he's going upstairs. Yeah. But is that yeah. the most, pri like, does that have the most primacy oh, yeah. <laughs> at this moment? Why are right. you using an orchestra to do Foley? Sure, exactly. So, um, you know, that's the thing you have to balance. I think mm. in games, especially because there's technology, there's like FMOD and WYs, and we even if we wanted to get super techy, technically we wrote a whole programming language to write to write all the music in this game. Uh, we wrote a programming language called Necronomicon. It's open source on GitHub. You can go make your own music with it. Um, based on Lucid and Super Collider. Uh, 
But at the end of the day, this, that stuff doesn't really matter. And the stuff that we were trying to do and capture was kind of like at a higher level of, uh, of abstraction. So like, yeah, I think Chad's right. It ended up being kind of, I think mostly there were kind of two modes of expression, which is that there are these more open uh, modes of expression where the player is doing something where they have more agency in the world. And then there are these more kind of structured moments. Right. And they were more composed, right? They're more like a, a traditional composition. And in fact, they're so composed, um, even the sound design is composed. I would say that the sound design and the music is indistinct. There's no difference. They're the same thing to us. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, there are moments, like the memories in particular. They're just um, all soundscape. It's all soundscape. Right. In fact, there's some that made it into the uh, soundtrack because it was just like, yeah, this is, to me, this is the sound of the music. Oh, super interesting. Right, so you, you literally saw it as the same place, and so obviously yeah. you taking it out would be, wouldn't make sense. Oh, that's really cool. Um, okay. Uh, Sorry, I'm just like super nerding <laughs> out and realizing that I'm supposed to be hosting a podcast that's been going... <laughs> longer than anticipated i but feel like that's we could talk forever. I, I see you on twitter liking magic the gathering stuff all the time and i feel like man i would love to talk to you just about that for oh really hours. oh man i uh, feel like we'd have a lot to say about it but i understand we have limited time <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i recently got back oh so here's the thing i have been playing magic since 95 and then i took a break from 2000 to 2010 and then when I moved to Europe, I didn't know anyone, so I didn't play. And then in the pandemic, my friends got back into it, and I kind of went magic crazy. But uh, I have so many thoughts about Magic the Gathering. Um, anyway. Yeah, we're, we're old school. We've been we, playing we play, it for started, just, yeah, I think 95 or 96. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think The Dark maybe was the first set that we... Oh, The play. Dark is so good. Uh, okay, I mean, I'm going to leave this in. But uh, <laughs> did you get a chance to to play? Do you guys play limited? Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. These days, I, that's I, my I have to say, I have. Way. This is one of the things that would be interesting to dis to discuss. Is I've come to the game and left it multiple times. I think we all have. I have to admit that now I'm at uh, a period of having been gone from it for a couple of years. If you so. can, if you have like six to eight people who will play Magic: The Gathering with you. Find uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty and draft it. It's one of the best limited environments I've 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 played. Um, it's really good. The what was the last one? New Capenna. I'm less happy with, but it's fine. I really enjoyed Dominaria, but after that, I mean, it was kind of like, yeah, and then I kind of stopped. Yeah, Throne of Eldraine, we we did. I I thought the limited of Throne of Eldraine was great. Oh, but that's because it's one of the most ridiculous sets that's ever been made. It is so yeah. I mean, constructed was silly, right? Oh, but, um, limited was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, but that's <laughs> the benefit of li limited, right? It's like it could be the most busto set, and it's in its own microcosm, so it's okay. But yeah, I mean, I I really like limited because I, I mean, it's the, the notion of like restrictions breed innovation. Uh, which is why I like Limited, which is why I initially liked Commander and don't like it as much anymore. Because... I enjoy Commander every now and then as a more of a... 
I treat it like a board game, right? It's like I don't invest myself in the game in the same way. It's more I, of a, just a group. Thing. I think that's the best way to do it. It's just, I guess, the problem is if the your play group cares about staples or new powerful things, it becomes yes. just like I liked oh, it when awful. it was. I have these cards he says grabbing a random stack of magic gathering because right. he's within reach like some weird, and then you're like i'll like make i'll make deck. a singleton deck based on this right? <laughs> right that's fine uh it's when when like basically when wizards started making making cards for commander is when the yes. it started being problematic this has been a real pleasure uh recursive ruin is on steam uh it's out uh play the demo buy the game and the soundtrack which i just learned about um, if they wanted, if the listeners wanted to talk to you guys directly or find out more about your aforementioned but not discussed next project, where would they stay tuned to? Probably the best to just get information would probably be Twitter. So, uh, Recursive Ruin on Twitter or Dr. Chad McKinney or Dr. Kurt McKinney are going to be uh, big places. Uh, you can also jump into our Discord. We're, we're part of the Iceberg Interactive Discord. So jump into there, and I will always, uh, I'm always on there. You can always ask me questions. You know, people do. Sometimes uh, I highly encourage you to throw in a, a behemoth uh, emoticon. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's probably the best way to see uh, what we're, you know, what we're up to. Awesome. Anything to add, Chet? You can also follow our studio at bitrock games on twitter uh but yeah awesome and as always you can find us at tanked up cast myself at the omniarch uh ben and lucy at juicyloose9 and nova underscore 47 and all the things we do here at out of lives at outoflives.net or out of lives network on all the things uh if you're watching this on youtube which i haven't figured out how i'm going to make that work uh, uh like subscribe ring the bell do all the things but also generally um Post about us, comment below, share. That way we can have more wonderful guests like Chad and Curtis and continue doing this podcast and also help pay us pay for some of our beers. I mean, let's be honest, that's that's part of the, the, the shtick. Uh, this has been Tanked Up for yet another week. Bye. www.outoflives.net Hi! You came back!